And now let's go to our guest, Mark Hamrick, who is a regular here. He's the Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst at Bankrate.com. Hey, Mark, how are you today? I'm well, John. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Tell me what you thought of the Fed announcement and the language that followed it. Well, the Federal Reserve announcement uh, in terms of uh, matching expectations was right on. This is a very transparent Federal Reserve uh, in the sense of trying to transmit its intentions, including with interest rate hikes. I think the big question now is, will they stick to their rate-raising guns, having said that they believe ongoing rate increases will be warranted to bring historically high inflation down? Recently, on a month-over-month basis, uh, inflation's actually been falling, but uh, there are a lot of uh, puzzle pieces to try to make sense of in this uh, post-pandemic and very remarkable economy. Like what? What are you keying in on there? Well, uh, case in point today, we had a significantly stronger than expected jobs report. More than 500,000 jobs added on the month, uh, vastly exceeding expectations. And within that report, uh, there's a measure, as you know, John, of wage gains. On a year-over-year basis, average hourly earnings are up 4.4%. That's the lowest for that since August of 2021. The peak was nearly 6% last year. So, No inflation pressures accelerating here, even with hiring accelerating and the nation's unemployment rate falling to the lowest we've seen since 1969 at 3.4%. Well, that all sounds good, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, But a lot of it doesn't make a tremendous amount of sense in the sense of, you know, this is an economy unlike anything we've ever seen before. Uh, And the, the strength of hiring really topping expectations so remarkably. Uh, You know, we're seeing an acceleration in the number of job openings as of this week's update on the so-called JOLTS report, soaring above 11 million once again. And that's obviously good news for employees and prospective workers. Employers would rather perhaps not have that mismatch between labor supply and demand. And uh, at the news conference that I attended where Chairman uh, Powell was speaking, He did say that he thinks there's less risk now of a so-called wage price spiral, meaning that he does not think the tightness of the job market is going to be a major risk for accelerating inflation in the future. You said that uh, earnings surged 4.4 percent. Does that mean average hourly earnings? That is, if I was making $10 an hour, now I'm making $10.04 an hour or whatever, $10.40 an hour, that wages went up 4.4 percent. That sounds like a lot to me, but you say that's less than previously. Given the backdrop of inflation, are then wage earners falling behind in their spending power right now? Well, they were, John, but uh, on a month-over-month basis, uh, our measures of inflation are now have minus signs in front of them. And so this may be the point of uh, the economic cycle, or or at least the present experience, where workers are uh, making some gains against uh, the pricing situation. We'll see uh, what, uh, among all those factors, uh, is sustainable. Uh, Chairman Powell talked this week about um, you know, so-called disinflation or, or falling price pressures have predominated among goods 
And he and his colleagues are concerned that uh, there may still be some stickiness with respect to uh, rents rising. And the only way that we'll really know about that is is the way that uh, future rents uh, are uh, measured and and monitored. And uh, uh, the housing market uh, obviously weakening in terms of home sales, although we're we're probably going to get some relief from that maximum point of weakness because uh, with the decline in the 10-year Treasury yield, which is sort of the model for uh, what the yield is for mortgage rates. Uh, we've seen uh, mortgage rates come well down off of their peak, but still significantly higher compared to a year ago. That's going to be the big lag, right? The housing market, that's the thing that's really going to keep the economy down or from expanding as much as it could. True? Uh, certainly, it's a major factor, John. Uh, you know, <laughs> when, when we look at the things that uh, react most immediately to interest rate hikes that began last March and then accelerated through the year and now seem to be sort of uh, uh, simmering down a little bit, so-called interest rate sensitive, you put housing at the top of the list. We also obviously saw the stock market get the wind knocked out of it. Uh, what many people thought was inevitable with uh, cryptocurrency uh, also occurred with a crash. Uh, Uh, That could rebound if, indeed, the Fed goes easy on monetary policy again. Uh, The thing about the housing market, John, is that, uh, as we know, and in in past cycles where there was a a boom and a bust uh, that led to the great financial crisis, or at least contributed to it, uh, is that it is highly cyclical. But one thing that doesn't change is that, uh, you know, we have growth in the population and a lot of demand for housing. And uh, millennials, among others, have uh, had fallen behind on their home ownership. Uh, for, among other reasons, you know, they were hurt by the great financial crisis. So they were among those uh, most financially fragile in recent years and then got, uh, you know, another uh, sucker punch, so to speak, with, with the uh, pandemic-related uh, recession as well. So I think uh, those cohorts, among others, members of that group uh, will uh, make further gains, and, and they'll be eager to buy homes as they have been in recent years, as uh, many people, frankly, just mature, so to speak, and and say, oh, uh, inner city life isn't necessarily the life for me if uh, I'm going to raise a family and, and, uh, you know, want to have a pastoral setting for my children to go to school. And by that you mean a backyard and and a pastoral setting in the neighborhood and all of that. But but it's tough for those people right now. We'll pause and maybe pick it up here in just a minute. Um, The the interest rates are, are telling them that they either have to be satisfied with a lot less house or they have to be a lot more patient uh, until rates come down, however, depending on how much money they can spend. They've only got so much to dedicate to a mortgage. We're talking to bank rates, Mark Hamrick. Uh, Mark, just one last thing, though. It just seems to me like the housing market is in a really interesting place right now because interest rates are still high enough that you know, the people that do want to get into a home have to decide to either buy less house or pay more, and some folks just can't do that. Um, do you have a sort of trajectory for mortgage rates this year for us? Yeah, I think uh, we're uh, of the mind that uh, once we get further confirmation that inflation has peaked, that mortgage rates should come down uh, further uh, and farther. And uh, we're getting a little bump up today because of the stronger-than-expected jobs report. It also depends, John, on uh, whether indeed we have, let's say, a confirmable recession this year or not, which would probably then uh, contribute to further uh, downward movements in mortgage rates. And, uh, you know, you're absolutely right. That's the conundrum 
uh, so to speak, of the current situation in the housing market. And the other part is that it manages to further restrain the supply of homes available because people uh, who are more senior, uh, looking at myself here in the mirror, uh, uh, are in a situation where they may they may not want to move out of their current home and, and get something that's smaller, even oh, yeah. though maybe that's where they would it's like to go because type, what are you going to sure. get? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it. You say, oh, I can get a good price for my house now. I got it. Well, this is more the pandemic when the rates were lower, but you could get a good price for your home. But then you had to go buy somebody else's home at an elevated price. Right now, uh, it, it'll be difficult to sell your home. And if you go out on the market, you're going to get less. Uh, it's, it, it's kind of the well, what do you think then? this summer, this fall? Are, would rates be in the fives? Are we going to go back to four this year? It went yeah, up yeah. so quickly, no? Yeah, pr- probably not, not unless we have uh, something that's confirmable in the sense of, uh, you know, as I say, a recession. Our bank rate average this week for the 30-year fixed down to 6.30%. You can do better than that if you shop around for the best rate. You can get 543 in a 15-year fixed on average uh, for a 15-year fixed. So for people that have um, shorter timelines. And of course, for some, and we don't necessarily recommend this for the majority out there, the adjustable rate mortgages are uh, predominating in the 5% range. But, you know, that's for people, uh, mostly wealthy individuals or those who have a high degree of confidence that they can afford uh, the rise in the mortgage rate as it does adjust, if that if it adjusts higher, um, and uh, otherwise would need to refinance. And we don't know what the true long-term direction is for for the 30-year fix, for example. We had a caller the other day who said his car loan was was it close to 9%. Uh, what do you hear about those rates? That is something that's highly dependent on the person's credit worthiness, John. And, and uh, you know, this is also an area where if you're buying a new car, you might be able to find a dealer that's going to provide an incentive w- with a discounted auto loan rate. The bank rate average this week for a new five-year car loan is 6.19%, 6.16 for four years, and used is pretty close to that. Uh, so uh, this is a reminder to people, uh, to the best that they can manage this, pay those bills on time, have the best credit rating you can have, the best credit score you can have, and that's what ultimately translates to a lower rate of interest for all the borrowing products out there. 60 months, is that the average length of a car loan? Five years? Uh, it's been going longer and longer, John. This is one of those that, uh, you know, I sort of get into my grouchy old man mode a little bit because as as the price of new cars has skyrocketed, and as you noted, we're, we're seeing uh, some of that reversing now as supply and demand get better in alignment. We've seen uh, people willing to take longer and longer uh, terms for their car loans, and, uh, and, and, and some are not cheapish about doing, uh, you know, six years plus. Uh, and I'm just, I, I'm just not a fan of that at all. I'd, I'd much rather see people try to buy a less expensive car, even if it's used. Uh, and, but but it, we acknowledge that the recent experience has been one particularly challenging because of the lack yeah. of supply, uh, and that's helped to keep prices up. And, um, you know, and now we've got interest rates going up as well. What are your thoughts, Mark Hamrick, from bank rate on leasing versus buying then? 
It's funny, I was having this conversation with our uh, son who has an MBA in, in Los Angeles uh, in recent weeks, and for some people it's a great solution because uh, they may not want to commit to longer-term ownership of a car, um, and you can certainly find information at Bankrate on car leasing versus buying. We've, we've done those comparisons. Uh, what it ends up doing is providing you with uh, a lower monthly payment if you get get the right terms, but then you don't own the asset. Uh, so essentially you're paying for, your, your, you know, it's another way of saying you're renting the car uh, and you have to make sure you abide by the lease terms so you don't get stuck because you, you know, use too many miles above, above the terms of the contract. Uh, so for some people, you know, I think it's a good solution. Probably not uh, for the majority of the audience, though. What's the average new car price these days? Forty... I haven't seen that number exactly, John, but I, I would guess it's in the mid forty thousand range. Uh, the big news in in the automobile uh, market recently, of course, has been that you know uh, that uh, always uh, surprising Elon Musk decided to chop uh, the the uh, new car price on the Model Y by about twenty uh, percent, or I think seventeen thousand dollars. And Ford has had to or or opted to follow suit uh, with the um, with their Mustang uh, EV. Uh, and this is maybe the beginning of a price war as many more EVs come to market over the next couple of years because uh, they have to invest in research and development right now. And obviously, you know, uh, they need to get those assembly lines moving as, as they put these uh, cars into the design and ultimately the production process. Uh, and, of course, right now, many people are looking at trying to get those federal incentives of $7,500 if they, if they can buy the right model that matches that. Uh, one last thing. Let's go back to that job report. Where are the jobs? What kind yeah, of leisure jobs? Leisure and hospitality, are... uh, bars and restaurants leading the way. They still have a gap of 500,000 jobs compared to the time before the pandemic. But there were nice job gains really all across the board here. Government had 74,000. Manufacturing and construction were there as well. And even retailing in January, where you might have thought they had a problem, uh, sort of where they didn't ramp up hiring that much uh, on a seasonal basis and, and had one of the worst uh, holiday shopping periods in, in a few years. So uh, we'll celebrate this January jobs report uh, while we have it and uh, acknowledge there's a high degree of uncertainty. The Fed's probably going to continue to raise rates at least one more time, maybe two. And one last thing about that. You said a 500,000 uh, job gap on uh, yeah. hospitality. Leisure and hospitality, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that... bars and restaurants still have uh, a good ways to go <laughs> to get back to where they were before the some pandemic. Of those places, even. Yeah. yeah, some of those places are gone, though, but it's. But I think anybody who's been to a restaurant now, you know that there are the help is better than it was, but they're yeah. still understaffed. It's still slow. In many locations, the other part is they have access to sales they didn't have before because a lot of these entities didn't have online orders and didn't have takeout. And now they might have even maybe not so much in Chicago this week, but, uh, you know, put, put tables outside so they actually have more capacity in warm weather than they had in the past. So a new opportunity. Yeah, they're not putting tables outside right now, Mark. If they do... <laughs> <laughs> if, if ain't no one going to sit at him, let me just say that. All Understood. Right. Mark Hamrick, nice to talk to you as always, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. Okay, this is kind of interesting. You go back to work in the office. Some people don't want to. Some people do. 
I mean, it sounds like more CEOs, especially even in the tech sector, are saying we got to get back into the office. They think that makes things more productive. Maybe it does. But then there's also the issue of diversity, which is conflicting with some of this. Marguerite Ward writes about this as a correspondent at businessinsider.com. Marguerite, it's John Williams. You're on WGN. How are you today? Great, John. Thanks for having me. How does this story start? What's going on here? So in 2020, during the pandemic, we all thought there was a major shift to remote work, that remote work was here to stay. But that might be short-lived. CEOs have more power with layoffs spreading throughout tech and media, changes to the economy, and they want people back in the office, at least uh, a number of top CEOs, Jamie Dimon of JPMorgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, Citadel, Goldman Sachs. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're saying that it doesn't work for people in their industries, that they need people to be more productive. But my article explored the cost of that, which is diversity and inclusion, um, something that these same CEOs have pledged to increase. So I'm, I'm really excited to dive into that with you. How is it that when we go back to the office, we lose those things? What's going on there? So what's happening is it impacts a number of workers from underrepresented backgrounds. Uh, first off, you have women and caregivers, uh, also male caregivers as well, who have children at home, who have elder care responsibilities. They're less likely to be able to stay in those positions. Then you have uh, research that shows that people with disabilities ranging from quote-unquote invisible ones like uh, depression to physical disabilities uh, have seen an increase in jobs. They're getting more jobs because they don't have to be in environments that aren't conducive to them, that they can take care of their mental health, they can take care of their disability or medical issues, you know, between meetings. So you have disabled workers. Then for some workers, uh, black workers specifically, they report that they face less discrimination and microaggressions or small acts of discrimination when working remote. There's been a number of op-eds where black workers have said, you know, I don't want to return to the office. I'm comfortable where I am. And then lastly, um, people who don't live in major cities have gotten opportunities uh, because of remote or flexible work that they otherwise wouldn't have, which helps boost local economies. Someone, for example, who's in Kansas who, uh, you know, isn't in a major city and has to take care of their grandma, but now gets a job at a major tech company. So there's long-term impacts here just besides productivity that I think CEOs need to consider. You've made me consider and think about a lot of things there. For instance, when we talk about work at home versus work in the office, uh, I do think we've contemplated of late the consideration for people who have small children or are doing elder care, but people who have high anxiety say they're functional but are more functional at home because of their struggles with mental illness, never thought about that. I can imagine, though, for those people, working from home would be more comfortable and, and they would be more productive. You're saying that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm open. I have a mental health disability. I have anxiety and depression. And I also work remote. I went from in the office to remote uh, in Arizona. And I can tell you, I am much more productive. And I am much happier. Of course, it does get lonely. You do need to visit the office every once in a while. You need to keep in contact. But I do want to share that from a, a personal standpoint. Yeah. And 
you know, we're, we're talking about people with, with um, you know, disabilities and, and stuff like that, but the benefits extend beyond that for flexible or hybrid situations. A number of studies show that workers in general are happier when they have the option to work remote. And as we both know, happier workers are more loyal to companies and are probably more productive. Well, then what's Jamie Dimon got wrong? I mean, I, <laughs> right. I understand right. how... You And maybe you're an exception. Maybe you're an exception with a lot of company. But I can understand how the dynamic in the office is more productive than when we're all remote. So what are they getting wrong here? Right. So I'm, I'm not claiming to know more than, you know, Mr. Diamond or these CEOs. But but you bring up an important point. What is the argument for uh, in-office return for highly collaborative jobs? Uh, perhaps you're writing a speech for a CEO. Perhaps you're making a group decision about an investment. Uh, highly collaborative. Uh, there is a real benefit for being in person. I think some would argue you can have that same collaboration remotely. It's just more difficult. Um, you know, we do have things like Google Docs, but if you're editing a PowerPoint or a presentation, sometimes there's body language and other feedback you don't necessarily get from remote work. Um, I also think, so, so, so there's definitely that aspect of it. Um, I think if CEOs can just approach this conversation with more nuance, then we'll have better outcomes. I don't think we should have a mass return to office or a mass mm-hmm. staying in remote. I think they need to decide by team by team basis, right? Or maybe even individual by individual basis. It's almost a hybrid of the hybrid. So we do want you in the office four days a week. But I'm sorry, this person actually is more functional at home because they have a mental illness or they're caring for an elder person. And so while somebody may throw their hands on their hips and say that's not fair, um, maybe this is the tough. This is why managers get paid to manage. You're going to have to figure figure that out. Right. I think it's what's best for the company. And I don't think that that's necessarily at odds with what's best for each employee. As you're saying, you know, if they have a documented mental health issue, if they have, you know, a proof of elder care and they can say, hey, I can sign on at 11 p.m. and finish that document you need by morning. I think that's best for the company. Right. I understand that. You know, it makes me wonder, too, and this is not a novel observation either, but why didn't we think along these lines in 2018 and 2019? Why did it take a pandemic to make us be a little more accommodating, accommodating to employees? That's exactly right. People in the disability space have been advocating for hybrid remote work for years. So you're absolutely right. I think a lot of industries said it's just too high stakes. I'm in media, for example. Uh, even during uh, national crises, we rarely have gone remote. Uh, people were called into the office during 9-11, right? So we never thought we could do these things that require high technology, high collaboration remote. Uh, but I think the pandemic was a turning point that, you know, under lockdown, under government orders, under the risk of literal death, uh, it, it forced CEOs to change. So you're absolutely right. People have been uh, wanting this for years, and it just took the, the pandemic to get us to that point. 
One last point with Marguerite Ward, correspondent at Insider, businessinsider.com is the site. Uh, it does seem to me, though, there's two groups, those that have a, a bona fide benefit from being at home and those who just want to be home and might be yeah. more productive in the office. I think it's that second group that we're mostly talking about here. When we talk about improved productivity and too bad, get your butt back downtown. Right, right. I think... I think that's where effective management comes in. If you're in a company that has high uh, trust and high autonomy, then I think that can work. If you're in a industry or business where your managers want to see you and they want to look over your shoulder, it, it might not work and it might be harder to make your case. But but I'm in a company that's uh, high trust, high autonomy. As long as you get the document in, the story in by a certain time, we don't really mind if you're remote. Um, and I think more managers might consider that that way of working. Um, there's a certain level of, of trust that professionals want to have. And, of course, if you're not turning in your deadlines, if you're not meeting your quotas, then absolutely, you know, the, the business has to do what's best for itself. But um, it, it might be... It might be more beneficial to the company and employees to think of more high trust, high autonomy. Marguerite Ward from Insider, businessinsider.com. Nice to talk to you today, Marguerite. Thanks for your thoughts. Thanks so much. More business news now. Here's Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. A new analysis shows Chicago had the 10th highest inflation rate increase last year. The compilation by Axios looked at consumer price index data. It shows Chicago area inflation rose 5.5 percent from 2021 to 2022. That's actually down from the 7 percent annual increase the year before. Miami recorded the highest inflation increase at 9.9 percent. Phoenix came in next at 9.5, followed by Seattle at 8.4 and Atlanta at 8.1 percent. Philadelphia, New York City, Baltimore, Detroit, and St. Louis also increases in the 6 percent range. Chicago area Bed Bath & Beyond stores are closing as the company teeters on the brink of bankruptcy. Stores in Chicago Ridge, Crystal Lake, Forest Park, Geneva, and Wilmette are among 87 stores closing nationally. The chain recently defaulted on some debt and may be close to filing for bankruptcy. Last year, Bed Bath & Beyond said it would close 150 stores, including those in Schaumburg and Gurnee. The home goods retailer has been working this week to arrange new financing or find a buyer. I'm Steve Grzanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Business to food time. Here's Steve Alexander. Mm-hmm. Happy Friday, and we're sponsored by the Chevy Silverado HD. Experience life in HD. Visit ChevyDriveChicago.com. March Madness isn't far away, but this is about Maker's Madness. And I've got a guy named Mark to tell us about it. And to be clear, it is not about Maker's Mark. It's about Maker's Madness with... Mark Denzler and President and CEO of the Illinois Manufacturers Association. He says IMA is 130 years old, and it represents over 4,000 companies in Illinois that manufacture, well, pretty much anything you can think of. And, of course, there are the big dogs. You certainly have the, the well-known names like Boeing and Caterpillar and John Deere and Abbott, uh, down to small, you know, third or fourth generation family companies that are literally in every town around the entire state of Illinois. There are manufacturers in every county, uh, every corner of the state. But since this is the business of food... Food manufacturing is the largest sector. Great. Now, about Maker's Madness? So we're really happy to launch the fourth edition of um, our annual Maker's Madness 
contest to determine the coolest thing made in Illinois. Any product made in Illinois is eligible and past winners? Yeah, so the inaugural winner three years ago was Caterpillar 797F, the large mining truck, the largest mining truck in the world that stands 27 feet tall with 13-foot tires. Uh, the second year is actually a self-regulating traffic heater from Termico Technologies in Elk Grove Village uh, that automatically sensed when there was snow and ice on a traffic light. It would melt it off uh, for protection of, of drivers. And then last year, Rivian's R1T, the new electric truck made in Bloomington Normal, um, was elected or was chosen by the voters as the coolest thing made in Illinois. You can nominate products to be in the brackets from now until the 19th at... The website is called makersmadnessil.com. And it is purely a popularity contest, which means... You know, products where the companies really made a concerted effort through social media, through their colleagues, um, their clients. Those are the companies that really do well in the contest. At makersmadnessil.com. Last year we had more than 400 unique products that were in the contest. And the winner will be crowned March 29th at the Governor's Mansion in Springfield. And... They get a nice trophy, they get a feature in our magazine, and of course they are crowned as the coolest thing made in Illinois, and they get to use that moniker for the next year. Mark Densler of the Illinois Manufacturers Association. From the farm to your belly, today's National Carrot Cake Day. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. On the Trust Business Lunch, here's Alan Shapiro, the founder of the Cider Summit. It's going to be at Navy Pier starting tomorrow. Hey, Alan, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks very much for having me. 200 different uh, producers, huh? About almost 200 fighters from about 50 or so different producers from around the country and, and from around the world as well. Well, you know, we've, we've all fin- or followed maybe craft beers, craft cocktails are having a day right now. Are, are ciders becoming more popular as well? Yeah, yeah, very much so. So it's interesting you mention that because I've been around the alcoholic beverage business for an awful long time. And we're starting, I think this category is trending a lot like the craft beer business did, just about 15 years behind. So over the last eight to 10 years, it's really become established as a long term kind of uh, alcoholic beverage option, you know, alongside wine, beer, craft cocktails, spirits, et cetera. So it's really found its, uh, its, its grounding in, it, in its uh, viability. What makes something a cider? What is that? In the simplest terms, it's fermented apple juice. So grapes into wine, apple juice into cider. Oh, no kidding, really. So it's always apple juice, cider. So do they always have an apple flavor then as well? Yeah, so I should also note that you can, you know, there's something called perry, which is pressed uh, pear juice. But what uh, predominantly, it's an apple-based category, and you have a lot of cider makers doing uh, tremendous flavor and spice innovation on top of that apple base. So the festival has, you know, the real family orchard-based traditional artisanal apple cider and then you also have a huge range of things where, you know, there might be mango or guava or uh-huh. spices or hops. And so there's a real opportunity for people to, we call them the cider curious, to come in and uh, explore all facets of the cider and peri categories. Yeah, so how does this work? Do I, I get a bracelet and then I can sample everything? Or how does it work at Navy Pier tomorrow? Right, so you can go online to CiderSummit.com and click on our Chicago section, and you'll be able to uh, take a look at the full product list and go to our ticket purchase section. 
And so we're sold out of VIP tickets already, but we do have general admission tickets available. And those um, sessions are either 12 noon to 3 p.m. or 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. And your purchase will get you a uh, tasting and event tasting glass and uh, a dozen tasting tokens. And you can buy additional uh, tastes on site. A lot of people like to go in small groups and, and, you know, kind of share their samples and really stretch those 12 tasting tickets. And like I said, you can, you know, decide you want to do, uh, you know, fruit and exotic flavor ciders or go around the world to Normandy and Spain and Denmark and Poland and all kinds of things. And, um, and a lot of people just, the category is new to them. And this was really created to give them that sampling opportunity. Here's your chance to sample it. It's out at Navy Pier. You can buy those tickets and find out more at Cider Summit NW, as in Northwest NW, CiderSummitNW.com slash Chicago. CiderSummitNW.com slash Chicago. Have a great weekend, Alan. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, John. Appreciate it.